Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Victor's co-host, Jill Weinbanks. I'm the author of The Watergate Girl, an MSNBC legal analyst, and the wearer of hashtag Jill's pins. And today's pin is a very special one for our guest, Heather Cox Richardson. It is a sword, a Confederate-era sword representing her expertise in the Civil War. And what's so important is that by studying history, we can gain a better understanding of the present and the future. It can show us the warning signs to past disasters that can prevent our having them recur. It can help us solve our current problems, and it can inform us of options that have worked in the past and those that haven't. For those of us seeing parallels to other failed democracies, the expertise of a historian is desirable, and today as our guest, we have exactly that, an eminent historian, Heather Cox Richardson, whose expertise will inform us about how to protect our democracy. Her special knowledge of the Civil War and the Republican Party will help us make sense of the transformation of the Republican Party into a Trump cult with no particular policies or platform. She will help us understand what Democrats can learn from history in order to save our democracy. I am very excited to have Heather as our guest on iGen Politics because I have come to know her by uh, reading her nightly newsletter, Letters from an American, which helps me understand the events of the day. And proof of that is obvious from anybody who reads her newsletters, but Last night, we're recording this on Monday, which is the day after uh, the tragic mass shootings in Buffalo and Orange County, California, and a killing in Chicago's Millennium Park underneath the bean uh, of a 17-year-old by another 17-year-old. And in terms of what we can learn from history and the Civil War, she told us that in her newsletter last night. She gives us facts and cites her sources so that it's totally reliable. It and the Hubble newsletter are the last things I read each night. If you don't subscribe, you should. Heather's newsletter is, as of December 2020, the most successful individual paid publication on Substack, but you can try it for free and then decide if you want to um, register for it, and then you can decide how much you want to pay. It's totally up to you. See our show notes for how to do that. So based on all this, you can tell that this is going to be a very enlightening uh, episode. And Heather, I want to give you some more background before you hear from her. You should know that she teaches courses on the American Civil War, the Reconstruction Era, the American West, and the Plains Indians at Boston College. Before that, she taught at MIT and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She has authored six books on the Civil War, Reconstruction, the Gilded Age, and the American West. She's covered topics from Abraham Lincoln to Theodore Roosevelt. Her most recent book, How the South Won the Civil War, was published in 2020. And she's currently working on another book. In addition to teaching and writing, Heather previously co-hosted the NPR podcast Freak Out and Carry On, and now co-hosts the podcast Now and Then 
In February 2022, you may have seen Heather interviewing President Joe Biden in a wonderful interview, which we will also post a link to in our show notes. Thank you, Heather, so much for joining us. We are so looking forward to this conversation. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Heather. And as one of what I consider to be the leading historians of our time, um, and someone who I am sure most of our audience has seen either on television or who has read your brilliant newsletter, which I very much enjoy. Uh, in fact, I never miss a day uh, because it combines history and current events in a way that makes sense of current events. And so I want to start because your expertise is in the American Civil War, Reconstruction, and how can that inform our decisions today? In your newsletter, history, especially the Civil War, is often a point of reference. And so tell me how you connect the history and give me some examples that we can use uh, to show how we can decide issues of today. Well, in many ways, we're still living Reconstruction. We're still working out the problems of Reconstruction because what the Civil War did is it rededicated America to the idea that all people were created equal. Now, there are caveats around that, of course, then and now still. But the idea that Abraham Lincoln advanced in the Gettysburg Address was the idea that we were rededicating America to being a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And to that end, The Republican Party in its early stages worked hard to make sure that individual Americans actually had access to equality before the law and equal access Mm -hmm. to resources. Now, again, lots of caveats in that, but there was this idea of a multicultural democracy. Of course, there's a terrible backlash against that coming all the way from America's, even before America's founding. And that's the idea that the country is really about hierarchies, that some people are better than others. And the way the American South designated that, of course, was the idea that white people were better than people of color, black people, indigenous Americans, and so on. So at our heart, we've always had this question, is, as Lincoln said, it viable for there to be a government based in the idea that all people are created equal. And if you if you th- take that as our baseline, Reconstruction is a great moment because it's a moment when the Republican Party and the American North for the first time really tried to put a multicultural democracy into place. Again, lots of, lots of errors, lots of things, people they didn't include, but the idea was absolutely there. And the backlash against that was really interesting in that moment because once the government got its, uh, its back behind the idea of the Department of Justice guaranteeing that the federal mm. government could protect rights within the states, and once we got the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, white supremacists began to say, hey, we didn't have any problem with black people. They're totally cool. We don't mind black equality. What we mind is poor people getting to vote because they're going to vote for things like roads and schools and hospitals, and that's going to cost tax dollars. And since they don't have anything, that money can only come from people who have property, and those people are all white. So letting poor people vote in America, according to their construction, meant that there would be a redistribution of wealth from people with stuff to people without stuff. And they explicitly in 1871 called that socialism or communism. And that concept that who gets to have a say in our government should only be those people with property is absolutely still at the heart of the fights we're having right now. Wow. Wow. And do you think those fights, which I would say we've reached a point where the, the divide is so enormous 
that I worry that we could be on the precipice of another civil war. And and so I want to ask, first of all, if you think we are at that point, and if so, what would that civil war look like? How would it be fought? Well, it is worth remembering, of course, that Russian propaganda has been pushing the idea that we are going to have a civil war for quite a while. You know, that's that's been on the table from the, the sort of the propaganda wing for a long time. And that's something that the right has pushed very hard. I will say, though, that this moment looks very much to me like the 1890s. And Americans forget just how violent the 1890s were. The strikes and the riots and the police cracking down on the workers and and the, the lynchings and all the violence that took place in our society in 1890. And this moment to me looks very much like that. And people say, you know, what would a civil war look? like and I would say well kind of like it looks like nowadays I don't suspect the day will come when we will have armies in the streets again but we certainly have guerrilla warfare we certainly have pockets of violence mm. we have extraordinary domestic violence right now that people tend to let slide under the radar screen uh, that I think is incredibly important and that that low well I wouldn't call it low-key violence that sort of ubiquitous violence is already with us. Now, of course, what people like me are very, very concerned about is this new moment in American history, which certainly appears to be the rise of, you, I mean, I can talk about whether or not it's fascism. I actually think it is not exactly fascism. There's something slightly different going on, but it is a form of authoritarianism that looks very much like uh, in, the, in its early phases, like Viktor Orban is trying to impose in Hungary or like uh, Vladimir Putin is imposing in Russia. And if that were the case, we would not necessarily have what one would call a civil war, but the imposition of a one-party state, which would destroy its opposition. So to, to the, those people, to the opposition, it would certainly feel like a civil war because they would end up in prisons or in mock trials or even executed. Um, that's, you know, that's what people like me are standing on the sidelines with our hair on fire, screaming about wanting Americans to wake up and recognize that that really could happen here. What is the antidote to that? Um, the Civil War, you're saying, did not really resolve the differences uh, in, in that case between slave and free states or those who were for poor people voting and those who were for only landed gentry voting. Um, what, what can happen today to resolve the disputes that divide us now? Well, I should say that I'm an idealist. I make a big point of this. I believe you change history by changing the way people think. And you change the way people think by changing the way they talk about things. So this is why I write every night. And this is why I do podcasts and things like that is because I want people to understand just what the stakes are and to talk about things about the way they really are, not the way that they are getting spun in the political media, which they have been now for a long time. This is not a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So what one can do to begin with is to make sure that we reclaim the way we talk about America. Again, this has its roots in in long-term American history in the 1850s, of course, the enslavers in the South made sure that no information from the North and from Lincoln could get to their voters because they were concerned about those voters, um, you know, understanding just how badly human enslavement was hurting them as well. We get the same kind of propaganda in the 1890s, again in the 1920s, and of course we've seen it since the just decline of the Fairness Doctrine in uh, the Reagan administration. 
So this idea of making sure that propaganda does not reign unchecked is enormously important. But then I would say that the other things to look for and to work for are voting, fair voting. The fact that the Republican Party at this point has so severely skewed our representational system is at the heart of all of our issues. And they were able to do so in part because of their use of propaganda. But then the other piece of that even deeper, I think, is that if in fact we could have fair voting, we would see the return of policies, including economic policies, that create um, a much fairer system in America, which is currently really heavily skewed toward people with wealth. And always in American history, Mm -hmm. when the rich people have everything, we always, always, always have a racial and xenophobic backlash against poor people and, uh, you know, people who are no longer able to make ends meet. They always turn on each other. And that's, you know, really quite a deliberate strategy um, uh, for a number of the people who are putting those policies in place. And once we actually were able to vote in such a way that we got, for example, legislation like the Build Back Better Act, like child care, like universal health care, like lower drug prices, all those things that would really help most Americans, I think that would draw a lot of the fangs of the anger and the hatred we're seeing right now. So let's go back in history a little bit. We've talked about Lincoln. You've written extensively about the Republican Party that once supported Abraham Lincoln and specifically noted um, that the economic vision of the party back then included a role for the federal government very different from the version of today's GOP. And so I'm wondering if you can tell our audience um, briefly what the Republican Party 150 years ago believed. So the Republican Party is really interesting. Both political parties are. And one of the things that I like to emphasize is they are not one side and the fitting opposite side. It's not yin and yang. It's kind of like a basketball and, you know, I don't know, a lilac bush. You know, they're, they're, they have their own internal logic that doesn't mesh, except very rarely, like the election of 1884 is one where you really do get one side and then the other side. In general, they have their own ideologies, and both of them are deeply rooted in who we are as people and who we are as a country. And we need two political parties, two healthy political parties, in order to preserve democracy, which I'm happy to talk about. It doesn't necessarily have to be the parties we have now, but we do need to have two. Now, the Republican Party is really interesting because when it rises, it rises against what people at the time knew as the slave power. And what they meant by that was the gradual process by which a few very wealthy enslavers, these tended to be people who owned more than 50 other human beings, they made up less than 1% of the population in the South, let alone in the entire country. And they had managed to take over the Democratic Party and through it then the national system. They managed to take over the Supreme Court of the United States, they managed to have uh, control over the president, and they had the Senate. What they didn't have was the House of Representatives. And what what happens is in 1854, Congress, under enormous pressure from that Democratic president, goes ahead and passes the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And the Kansas-Nebraska Act gets rid of the Missouri Compromise, which had kept human enslavement out of a lot of the West. And by enabling those large Southern enslavers to bring their chattel, their human property, into that land, what it would mean is that new states that were established in the West would be able to overawe the North and the free states in the House of Representatives, as well as in all the other branches of government. 
So a lot of Northerners who could not care less about the lives of Black Americans and certainly had no objection to enslavement within the states said, wait a minute, if we get rid of the idea of there being free states, states where you know men on the make like me can work hard and be equal before the law and have access to resources, we're going to end up with a, a nation that is entirely uh, dominated by enslavers, and they're going to hurt people like me. I'm not going to be able to afford land. I'm not going to be able to work my way up in that system. And when that happens, they take a stand against the slave power. Now, they don't actually, and they, they do incredibly well in the, the congressional elections of 1856, but they don't actually have a, 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 a philosophy until 1859. And it is Abraham Lincoln who gives them that philosophy. And he says, look, we have a problem in this country. The enslavers, characterized by a South Carolina senator, a man named James Henry Hammond, who had stood up on the floor of the Senate in 1858 and said, ah, equality, that's stupid. Nobody ever had equality. God didn't want equality. Well, the way the world really works is that there's a few of us who are smart and we're well-connected and we're wealthy and we're white and we dominate everybody else. The vast majority of, of people are, are he calls them mudsills, which are the pieces of wood that are driven into the ground to support a house. So they're mudsills. You know, they work hard, they're strong, they're the ones who produce all the all the goods, all the capital. But they really, you know, if you let them actually have access to the stuff they produce, they just waste it and you know, food and shelter and partying. He doesn't use that word. He says, we need to have a society where the government is arranged in such a way that people like me get all that capital. Because if we get all that capital, we're going to be able to use it in, in the ways that are best for society. So we're going to have fine art, and we're going to endow colleges, and we're going to use our land in such a way that it's going to produce a huge amount of cotton in this case, which is going to put clothing on people around the world, as in fact it was doing in the 1850s. And this is the way society should work. A few rich guys should run everything. And Lincoln, who is, of course, brilliant, looks at this and he's like, what are you talking about? I'm a mudsill. Like, literally, I grew up in a cabin that only had three walls when they lived briefly in Indiana. And you're an idiot. First of all, you have your job only because somebody gave it to you. And second of all, Hammond, even in that time, was known for raping both his nieces, but also his enslaved population. And he's just a thug. He's just nasty. He's a horrible man. So Lincoln looks at this and he says, no. This is not the way the world works. The way that the world works best is when the government doesn't support people like him because he doesn't call them out by name, although he uses the word mudsill and makes it clear what he's talking about. So because they get essentially fat and lazy. They don't need to innovate. They don't need to think. They don't need to do anything but, you know, count their money, basically. So he says the way that the society works best is if the government supports men on the make, people at the bottom of the of the of the totem pole, people who are just starting out and make sure that they have equal access to resources and equal access to the law because those people are innovators, they think, they work hard, they want to provide for their families, and because they are able to produce more than they can consume, if you invest in them, they will produce enough to support the next people, the shopkeepers and the shoemakers, which is a very, very labor-intensive scale in the 1850s. And then on top of them, there'll be a few major producers, you know, bankers and maybe a major industrialist or two. But they in turn will hire people at the bottom, and the whole cycle will start again. 
And that idea of the Republican Party, that idea that the world is really a sphere, it's a circle in which people at the bottom support the next group, support the top, which supports the bottom, was the idea of the original Republican Party. The problem, of course, was that it's very easy to take that idea that we're all in this together and turn it into, we need to help those people at the top because they're the job creators. And that happens repeatedly throughout Republican history. It has a bunch of stages. But that original idea that you're going to help people at the bottom and thereby help everybody is the one that Lincoln embraces and then Theodore Roosevelt and then in his day, Dwight Eisenhower. Sounds like a complete switch to the Democratic Party now versus the Republicans, where the Republicans still believe in trickle-down economics. Well, in trickle-down, as um, uh, uh, David Stockman said when they were first uh, putting that system in place under uh, Ronald Reagan, was another way to say trickle-down economics. The idea of supply-side economics was simply trickle-down economics. The Democrats are a little different, though. Their ideology comes from a different place. It comes from an earlier place and a different situation. The, the Democratic Party is going to form in 1828 to 1830 around Andrew Jackson. Really complicated forming because Andrew Jackson said one thing and did another. But that's uh, that. If you if you step back and look at what the party did, what the Democrats have always stood for is the recognition that people um, that the that the People at the bottom need to have equal representation in the government so that power will inevitably rise. It will inevitably go to a small group of people and somebody has to keep its finger on their finger on the scale to make sure that the people that the most of, of people actually have representation by the government and things don't get skewed too much to the rich. So I always kind of look at the early days of the Democrats as a line, kind of like a teeter totter or a seesaw and the Republicans as a circle. The idea that there's going to be this this web that goes on. And as I say, they're not exactly mirrors of each other. They're both mm -hmm. embedded in our society and at different times. Some of them have served us very well or very poorly and vice versa. And so what, what do you consider to be the most important turning points for the Republican and Democratic parties in terms of um, understanding current events? Um. I'm going to start with the Republican Party because, no, I'm not. Actually, I'm going to start with the Democratic Party. The most important, there are two important Democratic uh, turning points. The first is FDR and the rise of the New Deal. When FDR deliberately embraces the kind of government intervention in the economy in favor of workers, primarily male heteronormative fathers, um, to uh, protect them against the concentration of wealth among capitalists. And that's what happens in 1933 when he starts with the New Deal. That's a really important turning point because it gives us government regulation and it gives us the idea of a basic social safety net and it gives us the concept of investment in the economy, that government investment in the economy. And it's going to be that on which today's so-called conservatives, I, I don't no longer call them that, but take their name from a manifesto against that that they write in 1937. So there's that. But the other two really important turning points for the Democrats are, um, F, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Harry Truman's conversion to the concept that the federal government needs to protect black rights. And he does so after learning about the case of Isaac Woodard, who was a returning soldier from World War II, who was still wearing his uniform when his eyes are put out by a sheriff for talking back to a bus driver. And, um, and Truman, who was sort of a, a normally, you know, racist Missouri boy, 
um, who hadn't paid really that much attention to race, racial issues, um, looks at that and says, this is not okay. The federal government has to protect equality in the states as it was supposed to do after the 14th Amendment. And that's a turning point. Now, Eisenhower runs with that um, through his use of the Supreme Court, for example, and some of the other stuff he does. But the turning point is Truman saying, ho doggies, we got to do something here. And if you remember that, that picture of Truman holding up the newspaper that says Dewey beats Truman, people, that was the Chicago Tribune, people really thought that yeah. Truman was going to lose that election based on his defense of black rights. He was the first president to campaign in Harlem. And everyone was like, he sunk. That was a really big deal that he did that. And then that he went on to win. But then the next turning point, wow. I think, is the Voting Rights Act. Because after 1965, when the Democrats throw their weight behind the concept of black voting, of course, that's going to force, uh, or not force, it's going to make the Republicans pick up those racist Southern Democrats. But it's also going to move the Democrats down a pathway that's going to lead to the concept that people actually deserve representation in our government, regardless of their backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Now, weirdly, that's a, a callback to Jackson's time. And that sounds really weird because Jackson is a total racist and all sorts of things. But that ideology is one that he begins to articulate to defend his own takeover of the government. But I think when you look at the, the attempts of President Joe Biden to put in office, uh, you know, really a, a diverse set of people, that comes straight from 1965. Do you want to hear about the Republicans or do you want to go on to something else? Sure. No, go ahead. For this moment, to understand this moment for the Republicans, you have to recognize um, first the, and the reason I wanted to start with the Democrats, the Republican uh, absorption of those racist Southern Democrats uh, into the party. So after Truman begins to desegregate the military, uh, racist Southern Democrats, because remember, Democrats have been the, the racist party. Now, they didn't have any monopoly on that for sure, but they were the ones where especially Southerners congregated. They uh, break, uh, there's a group of really um, uh, reactionary Southern Democrats who break off from the Democrats after Truman's uh, con conversion and become the Dixiecrats, very briefly. But those Dixiecrats, the political party of the Dixiecrats, um, because becomes basically up for grabs and in mm -hmm. 19 they begin to talk to those uh business people in the republican party who don't like the new deal so what they're going to do is they're going to mold together with that republican branch which by the way they laid the, the groundwork for in in 1937 under that document i told you about but they're going to work with business the business wing of the republican party to form their own new coalition that brings together the racists and later on the sexists and the anti-business Republicans. And that wedding is going to be really obvious with the nomination of Barry Goldwater, Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, for the presidency in 1964. And if you remember that scene, and you can see it on YouTube, um, the 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 delegation that actually puts Goldwater over the top to win the nomination, Goldwater is an is a pro business um, Republican who has come out strongly against the idea of the federal government enforcing business regulation or civil rights. The group, the state delegation that puts him over the top is the delegation from South Carolina, 
And that's really deliberate. So in the election of 64, Goldwater picks up his home state of Arizona and five deep southern states. With that, with the recognition that you can break apart the Democratic coalition in the South by appealing to those racists, the Republican Party in 1968 makes the play for them. And that's when the Republican Party shifts dramatically to becoming what was essentially the old reactionary Southern Democratic Party. So that's an important moment. And the other important moment is the rise of Reagan, because the Reagan revolution highlights that anti-business regulation part of the coalition, but with, at the time, what were identified as dog whistles, but in retrospect are neon lights, the racism that uh, that um, Reagan harnessed with things like the welfare queen, the idea that there was this black woman who was taking money from all sorts of non-existent husbands. And, and um, you know, he really weaponized the idea of the social welfare net, the social safety net, as something that was sucking tax dollars out of white taxpayers. Again, a hark straight back to Reconstruction. They use the exact same language. They use yeah. that, and, um, and that combination of the anti-regulation uh, pro-business wing with that racist and by then sexist wing, it's Nixon brings sexism in, um, that creates an entirely new political party. Now, they had certainly nodded that way in the 1880s, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, and in the 1920s. But with the increasing dislike of the economic policies of that party, the Republican Party, beginning in the 1980s, first of all, weds itself to the Christian evangelicals, who begin to vote in large numbers, which they hadn't before. And it also begins to skew the voting system. So by 1986, the Republicans are talking about um, uh, Democrats stealing elections after the 1993 Motor Voter Act uh, passed by the Democrats. They Republicans begin to insist that every time they lose an election, it's because the, the Democrats cheated. And that uh, and so by 19, the late 1990s, they begin to suppress the vote in places like Florida. Lots of people focus on the 2000 vote in Florida and the few hundred votes that gave the election to George W. Bush. But in fact, before that election, up to 100,000 Democrats had been thrown off the rolls. People tend not to pay attention to that. So what happened is with this um, increasing manipulation, both of the system you also get in the Republican Party by the 2000 aughts a real escalation of rhetoric. So this idea somehow that this all started with Donald Trump is just wrong. What Donald Trump did is he provided a snapshot or a mirror of where the Republican Party was at that moment. Now, what's been interesting for me since then is the degree to which the Republicans have embraced authoritarianism, because authoritarianism is actually not good for business. And I'm, I'm really quite surprised to the degree to which people like Mitch McConnell have sort of looked the other way as mm -hmm. figures like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has essentially begun to use his state government as a theocratic tool to impose a certain set of uh, religious values on the state of Florida that actually hurt places like Disney. And so that's a real shift that who knows where it's going to lead. It's amazing how informed we can become from seeing from the 1850s this trend line and how bad things are for us now. So is it possible to come to a time when we can again have functioning political parties, bipartisanship, 
I mean, right now we are, and I mean, you've mentioned things that resonate with me. Nixon's Southern strategy certainly played a role in this. Um, and actually, I, one other question I have to ask about Nixon is I am convinced that if we had held him accountable, and I don't mean just by forcing him to resign, but actual criminal indictment, something that I fought for at the time and would fight for again, do you think it would have made a difference to how Donald Trump behaves if he knew that criminal indictment of a president, and and I would have fought for indicting Nixon while he was the sitting president because the evidence was quite clear, and certainly in the moments after he uh, resigned and was the former president, just an ordinary citizen. Do you think that would have made a difference to how Donald Trump, at least, if not the whole Republican Party, behaved? A thousand percent. I think if Nixon (laughs) had been held to account, even if he weren't found guilty, if he had been held to account, there would have been no Iran-Contra affair, there would have been no weapons of mass destruction, Mm. and there would have been no election of Donald Trump. I think that was a huge error. What do you think? I I certainly do. And I think, Victor, what do you think? I agree, too. Um, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's the, you know, pushing the envelope. You, yeah. there, there are certain personalities, and many of them are in politics, who will push until mm-hmm. they are stopped. And this is one of the things that, that I think many people don't see when they look at where the Republican Party is now or the Supreme Court or any number of places where they say, oh, don't worry, this is the last thing they'll do. It's never the last thing because those people can't stop. It's not that they won't. It's that they can't. They need to be told to stop, and and we haven't told them to stop. I I would add two things to that, which is, one, that it's part of my, my very being that I believe in right and wrong. And when I see crimes, I think they need to be uh, held to account. When I see criminals, I think they need to be indicted. And so for me, it is really just right or wrong, not necessarily would it have stopped a future crime, but that it's just what it is. But I do also think it would have stopped future crimes and that Donald Trump has been the beneficiary of this and then using it sort of as historic president, well, it didn't happen before, so it can't happen to me either. And I'm horrified when I hear you say things like, the Republican Party has always said, if we don't win, it's a rigged election. Uh, I didn't realize that went back before Donald Trump. I thought it was really just Donald Trump. Um, But thank heavens we have a president now who I think has brought decency back in, in many ways. And I, I know Victor wanted to ask you about your interview with President Biden. Yeah. So we'll include that in our show notes because it was such a good interview. And you interviewed President Biden. I'm wondering, first of all, how you snagged that interview. I didn't snag that interview. They called and asked if I wanted to do it. And um, oh, wow. and I, wow. I truly thought they were just asking questions on background. It never occurred to me that they were actually going to offer it to me. Hmm. And um uh, it was it was really quite a surprise, I have to say, <laughs> and I hadn't paid enough attention because because I'm a historian. Like I know President Biden probably better than almost anybody because I read everything he mm-hmm. writes. The same way I know I know 
most presidents better than anybody does. I promise you, I know B- Benjamin Harrison better than anybody else in the world because <laughs> I've read all of his all of his speeches. But but they're not real people to me. They're 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 real. I mean, they're they're they existed, but they're on paper. Yeah. And the idea that I would actually to me, Biden is very much alive and he's doing all his things and all that. But to me, he's a historical figure. So there was this weird thing of, oh, wait a minute, this is not, this is not history, except that it's being made. It, it was a very weird thing for a historian to interact with a living president, um, just because that's not, you know, I, I almost wanted it to be on paper. <laughs> one of the one of the things that you actually begin your interview with is looking at the rooms of the White House. And I thought that was really interesting. What was it like, I guess, just entering the White House? And for you as a historian, what did that moment mean to you? I'm so glad you asked that because nobody else has. And that was a similar moment of, to me, again, I know that White House really well. I'd never been in it, but I know it as a historical place. I know the stories of Thomas Jefferson Mm -hmm. having the enslaved people put up basically shrines to the American West. I know about Lincoln looking in the mirror and seeing his shadow. I, you know, I know all the stories and it's definitely like that. The rooms are small. It's beautifully, beautifully kept. Every place you look, there is some object of art that is famous and that, that evokes sorts of memories and ideas to people like me. But at the same time, it's an office building. And so there's this weird, like, we're in the China room and that's, you know, Grace Coolidge and there's, you know, Lady Bird Johnson's China. And, you know, of course, I know the story of Lady Bird. And, and then there's a whole room full of, you know, 20 and 30 somethings who are running 21st century recording equipment. And, and that, that, that sort of history interfacing with now um, was a really, it was almost like watching a split screen for me and was, was absolutely yeah. fascinating. That is really interesting. And so getting into the interview, there were so many things you could have talked about with President Biden, um, but especially one who assumed office with so many difficulties. How did you narrow down what you wanted to talk about with him? It's totally easy because, again, as a historian, um, I read every day. I read the Treasury uh, releases. I read State. I read uh, the White House. I read the newspapers. I mean, I read constantly. So I know all the policies. And I was not under any illusions that anybody was going to tell me something that wasn't already public knowledge. So for me, the question was what can I ask him that will give me information that he is willing to give me that nobody else has asked? And the answer to that is, again, as a historian, I see him as a transformational president. Good or bad, I don't know, but a transformational president. So I wanted to know what was in his head about that. So I asked questions that I hoped would lead to what it was like for him to be in transitional moments and transformational moments. And and that was an important one, of course, because he had just named, you know, hours before, um, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And I knew that he had been on the Senate Judiciary Committee for like a gazillion years and that he had taken control of it from Strom Thurmond, 
from you know from the the former Dixiecrat who had switched to join um, the the Goldwater campaign in '64 and had gone ahead and promised Nixon that he would bring along the Republic the the reactionary Democrats so long as Nixon promised he wouldn't mess or use the federal government to mess around with integration in the states. So I wanted you know I started with that you know you were there what did that look like. And then, um, and then just wanted to see how he talked. Now, I expected him to say some things he didn't. And that's, again, a funny thing for a historian because, like, I think I know why I think he's transitional. But he apparently doesn't think the same thing. And, of course, we all know I'm right and he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering, as a historian, what were your takeaways from that interview? First of all, that he's he's absolutely sharp sharp as a tack. He's a hundred percent on the ball, and um, and that uh, just you you can't emphasize enough. Um, which you know it's hard to talk for. I think it was thirty eight minutes with no notes, no information ahead of time, broad strokes on a number of different topics. After it was well, it's like five o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and there were a few things going on. It was the Supreme Court nomination. Oh, and there was a war in the you know the the, the biggest <laughs> war in Europe since World War II. And I believe until the last second they'd cancel it. But he was abs he was sharper than I was at that hour. Let me tell you. So that was the first piece that I thought was important. But I think the second piece was exactly what Jill pointed out. He's an exceedingly decent man who sees just how important this moment is in American history. And he's doing his absolute best to be doing what is right. Is he getting it right all the time? No, nobody does. But I left far more impressed with his heart and his, the brains that went with that than I had been, than I had expected to. Um, I tend to be a little bit cynical about presidents because I study them and I know they're just people and they got a lot on their plates. Um, but I, and, and I tend also, I think, frankly, to be a little bit scathing of politicians um, to judge them pretty harshly. And I felt just the opposite with him. And what amazes me is that it's not just President Biden, it's the people who he's put into his administration. I think of Jen Psaki, who really restored decency to the press briefing room. So it seems like it's this whole administration that's coming together at least to hopefully, like he says, restore the soul of the nation. Um, so well, let me interrupt what, for a second, Victor, yeah, because yeah. in the interest of complete fairness, Victor and I both ran and were yeah. elected as Biden uh, delegates. And both of us felt, uh, well, I can only speak for myself. I mean, I felt that his decency was something we very much needed and that his middle-of-the-road positions were also what was needed at that time in our history, and that that was the, the, the way to winning the presidency, um, that when you have a right-wing extremist on one side, having a left-wing extremist on the other is not the answer to bipartisanship and getting things done in America. So I just want to make clear to our listeners that both Victor and I are long-term supporters of President Biden. The other thing that's really interesting to me about him as a historical figure is that I made it a point earlier to talk about how FDR really focused on men. 
on working men. And that is not exclusive to FDR. The whole idea for Social Security really came from uh, Frances Perkins, his Secretary of Labor, the first woman to be in the cabinet as Secretary of Labor. But that she focused on providing for certainly the, the widows and children of disabled men, but the centerpiece of American life under that New Deal incarnation was essentially a working man with a wife and children. So a heteronormative white man, basically white male. And that's been the model now ever since. And the idea that you should have um, social support networks focused on any other kind of American, they were always kind of on the fringe. And what has really impressed me as a, as a scholar about the Biden administration is that it seems to me, and this is what I was pushing him on, and I, he didn't really run with it the way I expected him to, is the fact that he has centered children. He has centered children and their caregivers. And, and that's really, really different because it, it then uh, does things like it calls for the Build Back Better Act and the idea of child care, which, you know, quite frankly, in the 21st century, the fact that America does not have good, decent, cheap child care is crazy. We've been calling for it since 1930, well, 30, 41, since 1941. And presidents from both parties have called for it. And, you know, we're almost at 80 years now of people saying, hey, we ought to have some decent child care, you know, not to denigrate those people who give child care, but we should have a system, a, a cheap, you know, national system. So the fact that he is looking at that and looking at caregiving, looking at elder care, looking at child care, looking at those people who actually make the world work is, I think, really transformational. And I'm kind of surprised at the degree to which people don't seem to see it enough to come out and say, yeah, we don't just care about a basic social safety net. We care about a basic social safety net that protects our children. And that, I think, is a really interesting development that I did not see coming and I don't think it comes from him. I actually think it comes from some of the new, younger, well, maybe not so new anymore, but younger female politicians who have been arguing for a concept of a community not based in child giving, not, not based in, in giving birth to a child, but giving birth, but based in the idea of a community that centers around children. So people like Stacey Abrams, for example, who uh, ran based in this idea of her community, not her babies, but her community, or uh, Tammy Duckworth from Illinois, who focuses on the family aspect of those who got her out of the, the crash in Iraq, or, you know, Amy McGrath, you know, there's all these different people who've been looking at the importance of community based in protecting children, yours or somebody else's, from uh, the extremes of where this country has gone. So there seems to be this interesting tension. You have Democrats now pushing for new transformational, bold ideas, but you also have Republicans and institutional features that prevent them from getting that passed. And so I'm wondering what you think we can learn from, or we Democrats and President Biden can learn from history in order to improve their outcomes. And should there should they be more aggressive in terms of getting rid of the filibuster or enlarging the courts and changing these institutional features? Well, I'll say, first of all, that as a historian, I am a prop of the past and not of the future. So one of the things that I would like to see is a lot more ideas on the table from younger people, frankly, um, because this is a little bit odd to say, but the advent of modern medicine and the advent of modern transportation 
um, has meant that our current lawmakers are significantly older than they have been at any other time. And while age brings wisdom, it also brings fossilization. And I will entirely own that myself at 59 years old. Um, so I don't appear to be being ageist toward anybody else, but we do need more younger ideas. What worries me is that um, because our system is currently so dysfunctional, many of the younger people I see seem ready to throw the entire concept of democracy out the window yeah. uh, because mm -hmm. they feel that it has not worked for them. And I keep saying to younger people, what you are seeing is an aberration in American history. We are on the verge of authoritarianism. This is not the way it's supposed to work. So in terms of making things work again, um, voting, voting rights, you know, just, vote, you know, if we had the voting rights, we would be able to get rid of the filibuster. We were, or at least return it to a talking filibuster. Would We would be able to write a lot of the ship that currently can't be righted simply because some states are locked into minority voting now. And they are worse, going to be worse going into 2022 and 2024 with 19 Republican dominated states having set up their systems in such a way that virtually Democrats can't win. And of course, we know that the House is, is skewed because of gerrymandering and the Senate is skewed because of, um, I always like to say, because of steel frame construction, because after 1873, once we get steel frame construction, we are able to have giant cities that when the framers put together the Constitution, they did not foresee states that have Los Angeles, for example, Chicago or New York. And um, so there, there are definitely places we need to work and we need to bring this democracy up to a modern, uh, a modern system. I so, just want to say two things. One, Victor has written recently some op-eds about the youth vote. And I think we should put them in the show notes for this particular thing based on your references to youth involvement and um, he has an idea for the White House to open an office of youth that I think is a brilliant idea. And so I, I want to encourage our listeners to read his op-eds and to think about that. Um, but you did mention filibuster, well, well, and I just want to ask a quick question. Well, a quick question think, about Victor? filibuster. What do you think should, well, can I just ask, Victor, what do you think that people sure. like me should do for young people? So I think... One of the most important things that I've picked up on just talking to my peers, and there was a recent Harvard Youth poll that really showed some shocking statistics of just this idea of young people looking at the world around them and nothing seems to be improving. I honestly think for young people, it's just knowing that we have a voice at the table and knowing that we aren't just talked to, but we are included in this, these discussions. Our perspectives are important. And part of the thing that I wrote last week was having Democrats support more young people running for office, having President Biden hopefully create some sort of apparatus within the administration that would get young people at the table consistently and um, be a voice to him about what issues he should be focusing on that, I guess, impact my generation. Because a lot of the issues that we're seeing right now just don't seem to be getting better. And I think a lot of it kind of stems from this lack of youth participation um, in government, I guess, the involvement that elected officials um, don't bring our voices in. And so I'd say just bringing our voices in is probably one of the most important things. So back to the, the, your reference to filibuster, because people think, well, it's, it's always been. And you, as a historian, of course, know that filibuster, particularly in its current form, is not a historic relic. And 
for me, the filibuster is the tyranny of the minority and that it prevents the majority from doing the will of the people. But I'd love to have a, a quick comment from you on filibuster. So basically, the filibuster is because nobody ever came up with a way to stop senators from talking. You know, both the House and the Senate originally did not have ways to make the members shut up. And the House had to come up with one pretty early on. It's actually during the, I believe it's during the War of 1812. They have to figure out how to make their colleagues shut up. And they come up with a system for doing that. The Senate doesn't do that because it's a small group and it's supposed to be a collegial group. So all a filibuster is, it's, is it's, the, it's the ability for people to keep talking to prevent a vote so they keep on talking. And that was rarely used in the 19th century. And one of the things that frustrates me is people say, oh, if we get rid of the filibuster, you know, we're, we'll never be able to govern. And I'm like, I've read all the congressional record through the Civil War and Reconstruction. I promise you that you can take care of big issues during even times of war without the filibuster, because I never once saw it used in those, in those circumstances. But as, as we know, it was deployed when it was deployed, especially in the early 20th century, it was deployed to do things like stop um, lynch, anti-lynching legislation. It tended to be used by the Southern at the time minority to stop the federal government from leveling the, the racial playing field. Um, in, the late, in the late 20th century, um, the talking filibuster becomes difficult because there is so much business in front of the Senate that they're worried it's going to slow down the way that, that the Senate works. So they develop a system where you don't actually have to do the talking filibuster. You just have to say you're going to filibuster. And what that does is it makes it really, really easy to stop legislation. And that's where we are right now, where in order to get anything through the Senate, you have to guarantee that you've got 60 votes. And the argument that has developed since then, it's not original to it, since then, is that this will create bipartisanship. It does not create bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. What it does is it enables, as you say, this small minority, because as most people may or may not know that the 50 Democrats in the Senate represent more than 40 million more people than the 50 Republicans do. And our country is about 330 million people. So that's not a small number. Um, it enables them to stop anything. And really dramatically after Sandy Hook, uh, after the Sandy Hook massacre, there's, of course, enormous power in the country and enthusiasm in the country for putting some basic uh, fences around the ownership of uh, the kinds of weapons that were used at Sandy Hook. And it, it, it got stopped by a filibuster. And the, the it, I mean, a filibuster representing a minority of the American population. And so, you know, there's a, an argument, there's a number of arguments for why we shouldn't get rid of the filibuster because it will take away the ability of a minority to stop something egregious. Uh, I will note that Mitch McConnell seems to get real, rid of the filibuster whenever he feels like it. But at the very least, we could go back to the old system of a talking filibuster and the need for people to be on the floor of the Senate. Yeah for that to happen, because then it would really actually require people to put some skin in the game. And I think we would find a lot more got through. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I, but I also think that it's quite possible that if the Democrats don't get rid of it, the Republicans will, as you've pointed out, McConnell will do anything when it's convenient for him. But let's turn to your newsletter, because I am a huge fan of your newsletter. And as I said to you earlier, one of the things I admire is that you help us make sense of the issues of today by putting them in dialogue with history. And 
So can you just tell our listeners who may not have had a chance to read your newsletter yet, first of all, how you approach writing it almost every day, giving yourself a mental health day every once in a while. Um, and then, then sometimes you'll send us beautiful nature photographs. Uh, this week it was jellyfish, but I've seen lots of other beautiful pictures of countryside. Um, and of course, that makes me think about taking a break too. So that's a good thing. But how do you approach it? And how do you, you know, think about the subjects you're going to write about? And I love that you include citations to facts uh, which brings us back to how do we get people to read facts and analyze them, even if they are not coming from Fox News. The newsletter began as a way to answer questions that people were asking me at the time about uh, the, the whistleblower in um, September of 2019 that was eventually going to reveal then-President Donald Trump's phone call to Volodymyr Zelensky trying to ex- uh, to extort him in order to try and, and throw the 2020 election to Trump over um, what looked to be his main tr- challenger at the time, Joe Biden. And people, I was explaining who the figures, who the people were and what was happening and who the players were. And people asked more and more questions. So one thing led to another and I started writing the newsletter. But the experiment of using the actual citations. Everything is always cited, unless it's from one of my own books. And then I just feel like a weenie going ahead and saying, oh, you need to read my book. You know, I sort of feel you should trust me on that one. Or if it's something really common, I don't, I don't footnote um, the Gettysburg yeah. Address, for example. Um, but that's part of a, a, a reference back to the idea of the Enlightenment, the idea that if we make fact-based arguments that most people eventually can be swayed by the facts. Now, that's not always true now that we have modern-day psychological operations, but that's a nod to the, the, my belief in the Enlightenment, basically. Um, the good aspects of the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment was not an unmitigated great thing, by the way, but the idea of basing uh, the way society works on facts, it seems to me, is central to what America was based on, based as it was, on the Enlightenment values uh, of the frame, the founders, and not on religion, for example, or nationalism or militarism. All right, so what I do to come up with what I'm going to write about, and here's a great example. If you read me, you will know I have never mentioned that Elon Musk was buying Twitter. And the reason for that was that I didn't think it was going to happen. And the reason for that was because the way that the, that the, the uh, purchase was structured it sure looked to me like there were a lot of places it wasn't going to go through. And there were other things going on at the time, say, for example, the extraordinary fluctuation in the value of Tesla stock that suggested to me there might be other things going on. Now, if that deal actually goes through, I will write about it. But one of the advantages I have is that having read so much, so many newspapers, really, from the past, I know that a lot of stories that seem like the story of the moment disappeared and other stories that were kind of sleeper stories became huge. And having done this now for 30 years, I think I have a decent view to what matters in the long term. So for example, when Anthony Blinken gave his first major speech before the state department, I read it and it was not covered widely at all, but I read it and I was like, Whoa, 
doggies. This is a whole new way of looking at America's relationship to the rest of the world. This is really important. Well, of course, now it's turned out to be that way because of the way that they have reworked NATO and our allies and partnerships. But so when I look at the news, as I have already begun to do for today, I look for the long trends. What do today's stories say about longer trends in American history? And of those, how do I look at them in such a way that they can provide a snapshot for today? Because one of the things that I've pulled from with the title, Letters from an American, is Hector St. John de Crevecourt, uh, Letters from an American Farmer, which took a look at the question in the early um, 19th century, what is this American, this new man? So I'm always trying to see what America is, but I'm also nodding to Alistair Cook's Letters from America, in which once a week, that British observer would try to take a snapshot of America by looking, for example, at a tattoo artist or at the news media, or, you know, he was always looking at one other thing. So I try, I don't always do it. There are some days that are just news roundups, but I try to take a snapshot of the country on this day and to make sure I've included the things that a graduate student in 150 years will say, oh, that's the moment that that happened. So instead of looking at the day's news, I'm really looking at it from 100 years in advance and trying to pick out what's going to matter and what isn't. And, and there's a lot. I actually have files of citations that I have not used yet that I want to talk about, but they, I just mm. haven't had the room or the theme yet to do that because so much is going on. I think it would be much easier if we had like half as much information coming at us as as we do. I originally said that I would only talk about um, the Trump administration, nothing around it, just the Trump administration. And then someone said, oh, you got to do the whole country. I said, you can't. It's not possible to do. Well, what am I doing now? And then, and then you know, then we got the war in, in um, uh, Putin's attack on Ukraine. And it's like, I can't ignore that. You know, and, and pretty soon I'm going to have to look down to, you can see if you read me that I've started to nod toward the American economic relationship with the South Asian countries. I mean, mm -hmm. it's exciting. I get to learn a lot, but it's an awful lot to cram into 1,200 words a night. Well, that's all the more reason for our listeners and viewers to check out your um, Substack newsletter. Um, to close out the podcast, we usually end with um, some advice for young people. And for young people who may be thinking about a major, um, what would you say to them about the value of majoring in history? Historians can do anything because what we do is we take a lot of information and we digest it. And then we tell it to, to an audience. And an audience might be your partners in your surgical firm where you're trying to explain why you think it's a good idea to get a certain piece of equipment. Or it could be the American people. You need to figure out what your audience is. But we can do anything from the law to banking to business to business consulting to engineering. You name it, historians can do it. Because we really study is how and why societies change. And we are all part of that enterprise, whether we call ourselves historians or not. So one last question. Um, we've talked about some difficult subjects today and our political system right now, we, we, before we recorded, we were talking about just how grim the world is. What gives you hope for the future? So as bad as things seem now, 
look at look at us look at the people around us look at the artists and the thinkers and the young people and how kind people are and how decent people are and how they're pushing back against the hate and honestly as as horrifying as some of the past several years have been i am more hopeful now about america than i ever have been before because the changes that we are seeing now have been in the works for a long time and I remember during the George W. Bush administration talking about the, uh, the signing statements that actually a young Samuel Alito had proposed to the Reagan administration in the 1980s and that George W. Bush had begun to use quite deliberately to take power away from Congress and to concentrate it in the executive. And people being like, oh, for God's sake, you're so boring. Who cares about anything like that? Now people are sitting up and taking notice and recognizing that you know, we're, we're a decent group of people who have the right in our documents and in our traditions to consent to the government that, that, that runs this country. And we're stepping up to the plate to take it back. So I have faith in the American people and I have faith in America's young people. And they are the ones that I, I look to, to to help us straighten this mess out. Thank you so much, Heather. That was really inspiring. And talking to you has been a complete delight. I, I wish you lived in Chicago and we could have coffee every day and have this conversation. <laughs> I know we'd be friends if you lived here. It would be fabulous. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And I'm a real fan of what you people are doing here. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Heather. We hope you enjoyed it as much as Jill and I both did, and that you'll tune in next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, you can like, review us on Apple Podcasts. Um, you can also subscribe to us and like this video on YouTube and click the bell for our weekly notifications for our episodes every Wednesday. Thank you so much, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of iGen Politics.